From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Regardless of age or experience, you'd be hard-pressed to find a young football player who hasn't dreamed of hearing their name called on the night of the NFL draft. This weekend, we'll see how many Gators have the chance to live out that fantasy as the annual circus makes its way to Dallas for the first time. On today's show, we'll discuss Gators in the draft, the latest on softball and baseball, and the retirement of a Gator coaching legend with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, we'll get to know baseball ace Jackson Coar. But first, the Gators have had a long history of success in the NFL Draft, and that tradition is likely to continue this weekend. To open up our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we asked them their expectations for which Gators should be ready to shake the commissioner's hand. I mean, I think, you know, you look at Taven Bryan, he's the most talked about Gator in this draft. There's some real talk of him being a first-round draft choice. Will not be surprising if it happens. He's a guy who's going to get drafted if he goes that high on upside. Uh, you look at his career at Florida, nothing spectacular, but the guy passes all the eye tests, has all the uh, measurements and speed uh, times that the NFL loves. Uh, it could be a really good pick for somebody as far as developing a future defensive tackle. Uh, I think after that, uh, it's really a wild card. I mean, to me, Antonio Callaway is the next guy who could go off the board or he might not get picked at all. I mean, that's the conundrum uh, that folks face over Antonio Callaway because of his his issues off the field. Another one resurfaced this week that raises even more questions. But you know what? As we talked about before on this podcast, it only takes one team. If Antonio Callaway does not get drafted, some people say he's as high as a second-round draft pick uh, if he didn't have off-the-field issues. I've seen where they've said he's the best route runner of any receiver in the draft. So there's a lot to like if you're an NFL talent evaluator. But uh, there's also a lot not to like, and I think that's where it's going to be interesting. I do know whether he gets drafted or not, Antonio Callaway is going to get a shot in the NFL. We just don't know where. After that, I think uh, the most intriguing plot line may be the kicker and the punter, Eddie Pinero and Johnny Townsend. I mean, there's a realistic shot that one or two could get drafted. I mean, I'd be shocked if both get drafted. It's just a rarity uh, in the draft to have a lot of kickers and punters go. But I won't be surprised if at least one goes. Uh, you know, if I had to lean toward one of those guys, maybe Townsend gets the nod a little bit. But, you know, that's just the nature of the Florida program right now, Adam, when we're talking about the kicker and punter being potential draft picks. There's not a lot to pick from after uh, Taven Bryan, Duke Dawson, Antonio Callaway. Those are some of the names you're going to hear probably in this draft. And after that, it's a lot of question marks. When you have a guy like Taven Bryan, who's been painted as a poor man's kind of J.J. Watt, that's quite a that's quite an honor and certainly quite a high bar to have to live up to. Um, I'm not sure he's going to be that, but uh, an NFL situation may give him a better situation than he than he had here. Quite frankly, I think he's he was the guy who kind of felt like um, maybe he was working at a different speed than a lot of other people on the football team. And I something tells me that guy's going to really take advantage of his. Uh, his opportunity at the next level. If you ask me about it, maybe another guy who could jump into the mix, maybe um, second day, late second day, early third day, maybe Duke Dawson, the defensive back may sneak in there. But I, I, I'm on board with what Scott said in terms of if, if you're looking for 
guys that may sneak in there and may uh, make an impact down the line. I mean, there, you know, those hidden yards and those uh, those points on field goals sure do mean a lot in National Football League games. Yeah, I think more so obviously than they than they do in college. And uh, uh, Johnny Townsend is a hell of a punter. Uh, Eddie Pinheiro has got an incredibly strong leg. I, I, I remember here at the pro day they they wouldn't let him kick into the wind because he wanted to try to boom like a 65 or 70 yarder they know he has a strong leg uh pretty darn accurate and it wouldn't surprise me if someone spent a a late round draft pick on those two guys but uh uh Bryan is going to be in dallas thursday night so uh that would be a great time for him to uh to celebrate with his uh with his family and likely be the next uh first round gator off the board there's been 51 in uh, history since the draft uh, allocation began in 1935. And that's the uh, sixth uh, longest uh, uh, or sixth most, excuse me, of any college program in the country. That's really impressive. I know you did a, a whole piece on Gators in the NFL draft historically breaking down the numbers. What else stood out to you when you did that research in terms of maybe something that you wouldn't have expected to find? What didn't surprise me is that you, know, you think of the Chicago Bears. They, they've actually had the most Gators drafted in the first round of any team at five. The Jaguars right behind at four. The Carolina Panthers have never drafted a University of Florida football player. Hmm. I thought that was pretty uh, unique when you looked at it. And I noticed that uh, the Buffalo Bills had been, I want to say, nearly 40 years without drafting a Florida player. And the Green Bay Packers drafted Deshaun Wynn. And uh, I believe it was 2007. And before that, their last Gator that they picked was back in 1978. So when you when you look at it like that, you start crunching numbers like that. You find some surprises along the way. But seven teams have never picked a Gator in the first round. Uh, Maybe somebody will uh, that that has never done so uh, Thursday when that when the draft allocation goes down. But uh, uh, the fact that Carolina has never taken one, that was a. that was something of a surprise. We mentioned some of the candidates and the guys that you know we might hear. If you could pick one guy from this Florida draft class that you think is going to be a steal, you think is going to have a really big impact, who would that be? When I look at Taven Bryan, Chris, to be honest with you, I see a guy who is either going to be a steal or a bust. I think a guy like him who really, when you think about it, I mean, his college career was solid, but by no means was it spectacular. I mean, when you think of Gators defensive linemen in recent years who have had a more notable career, Sharif Floyd, Dominique Easley, Dante Fowler Jr., those guys all kind of stand out to me more than Taven Bryan. But like I said earlier, he's got such upside. He's got all these physical tools that you, you know, you either have them or you don't. And there's very rare combination of one guy with them all. And I'm talking about size and speed and, and just the, his body's just so, so strong and solid, constructed for a defensive tackle. And yet the guy's got an athletic, uh, ability that you just don't see. So, I mean, he's the, he's the clear one to me, but it's second after that's Callaway. I mean, I could see Callaway having a good NFL career if he gets his head on straight. I'm going to go the other direction. Yeah. Instead of saying who's going to be a sleeper, who's, who's not going to work out. And I'm, I'm going to go against Scott. I, I, I don't think Antonio Callaway is going to get drafted. Uh, the way the league is now, the way they've uh, uh, drawn some lines, and and the way the the commissioner is doing things, I mean, that, this guy can't stay out of the headlines in a negative way. And um, given the fact that um, come next spring, um, there's going to be this uh, substandard uh, football league that our ambassador coach is going to be coaching in down in Orlando. Uh, maybe that's the direction a guy like Antonio Callaway is going to have to go to prove he can uh, toe the line and do what's right 
and uh, show what he can do in, in that kind of a forum before they give him a chance in the National Football League. Because, you know, frankly, he's had opportunities. And if the latest uh, report um, out of the combine that, uh, that he screwed up again is, is indeed true, then um, I, I don't see a team um, uh, going out on a limb on the guy. Chris has stepped into uh, a reality that I'm not aware of. Pro teams take guys all the time with issues. <laughs> I just see true. Oh no, there's. I mean, they they do. I I just I just think things are trending in a in a different direction with the league right now. Well, you and, could be right about his future football. Like it could be in one of these other leagues. I just still think that by the end of the summer, he's going to be at least in somebody's camp. But you know, I've been wrong once or twice before. I hate agreeing with Chris. It makes my stomach churn. I think he's on to something, though, because when you look at Callaway and what he needed to do, especially at the Combine, and to have the reports come out that say there was a failed test, that's, you know, that, that's your one chance to redeem yourself. And to do that shows a lack of discipline that if, if I'm a GM, even with talent, I would be really, really scared of. Because if, if you're if you're going to make a mistake like that, given how high the stakes were for him, it just opens up the question of, well, what else might this guy do if he messes up this one opportunity he has to show that he's changed his act? And let's not, you know, if there's, there's other reports out there that part of his diversionary program agreement was to stay clean. So uh, uh, if he violated that, then that's now a legal problem, uh, not an NFL problem. So uh, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I just think there's just a, a, a huge question mark and, and even bigger red flags over the guy. Uh, yeah, to, to put a bow on this, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to give you Johnny Townsend. I just think if you look at how solid and consistent he was, people forget about punters, but these guys can have really long, lengthy careers. And I think Townsend's the kind of guy who's in position to do that. So if someone is able to, to get him maybe at the end of the draft, I think Johnny Townsend, you know, you don't see many punters that go to the NFL and have a lot of trouble. You can see kickers. I mean, the, the Aguayo case recently certainly hurts Pinedo because of the big leg and obviously the way he didn't work out in Tampa. Kickers think are more unreliable, but I, I'd feel good about taking Johnny Townsend if I was an NFL GM. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm there with you. I think he would get picked before Pinedo, but I also like uh, Townsend's. He's a good athlete, mm-hmm. which helps his case even more. I mean, the punters of old, guys who uh, couldn't make a tackle if they were a bad kicker, they were off the team fast. I mean, Johnny Townsend, he's he's got a few uh, YouTube clips out there for making tackles at Florida. He's not afraid to get in there. Of course, no NFL team's going to draft a punter hoping he has to do that. But <laughs> the fan that he, he's got some uh, athletic ability, he's a big kid, big, strong guy. And, uh, yeah, and I think he's a great He's a great locker room guy, uh, although I don't know how much a punter has to say in the NFL locker room. Uh, but Johnny Townsend's got all those uh, characteristics that they look for in, that, in those guys. No question. Let's move on to baseball, softball. Let's start with softball. Uh, important midweek victory for them. They avenged their earlier loss in Tallahassee. They beat FSU in front of a huge crowd. Got another sterling performance from Kelly Barnhill. And now, Chris, going into this weekend, they, they welcome in LSU and a chance potentially to all but sew up the SEC title. Yeah, they, they would have to sweep LSU, and I believe Georgia would have to lose, be swept by Alabama. Certainly those things are, are, are possible, but Florida's put itself in a good position there. Um, I wrote a story uh, about Kelly Barnhill. I mean, she, she got into an early, early jam, uh, second and third, no outs after a throwing error on a, on a bunt back to her, as we've seen her do before. Like last year in the Alabama uh, Super Regional, she chucked the ball to first base and threw it down the right field line. 
what Tim Walton talked about after the game, Adam, was uh, Kelly seems to be answering um, maybe some plays, uh, some negative plays, be it hit batters, wild pitches, uh, errors, maybe giving up a home run or something a lot better uh, this season than she has in the past. Her numbers aren't as staggering as they were last year when her ERA, I believe, was the uh, 0.51. It's now at 0.80. Hardly uh, anything to sneeze at, but um, uh, her her strikeouts per game are down somewhat, but he likes how she's uh, handling herself. And uh, as as the pitcher that you know, everyone's gearing up for target on her back and all that stuff. Uh, he mentioned uh, he thinks she's responding a lot better when she might make a so-called negative play in that game Wednesday night where she made that throwing air second and third, no outs early in the game. Damn it. She didn't strike out the next batter, get the next one to pop up and then strike out another one uh, looking. So she got out of that jam and uh, it was a scoreless game going into the last inning excuse me, in the bottom of the six, Florida's last at-bat, as it turned out. They scored five runs, gave her a five-zip lead. She gave up a leadoff homer in the seventh and then struck out the side. So that played right into what Tim was talking about after the game, how you know how she does answer a little bit of uh, of distress, which is a great sign for Florida if you consider you get two more SEC series, two more weekends SEC series. And then it's on the postseason, and uh, Kelly Barnhill, 22-1, and one, probably pitching at her best right now maybe statistically not like last year but uh i'm sure if you asked if you took a poll around the country you know what pitcher would you rather not see in the postseason i imagine kelly barnhill's name is going to come up a bunch there's no question about that and, and speaking of pitching that's been the story of the week for the gator baseball team hot off of a, an impressive series victory at kentucky which is very very rare for them against the top 10 kentucky team kevin o'sullivan doing a little bit of tinkering with their weekend rotation scott tell us more about that and, and what the ramifications are yeah, he's going to go with uh, Jack Leftwich, who, you know, the freshman we've seen make some midweek starts, uh, has done very well. He, I think he's just going to try to put him in there against Auburn this weekend and skip Tyler Dyson in the spot. I mean, Dyson lost up at Kentucky uh, last weekend after Gators took the first two games. You know, he's just hit a little rough patch. He's 5-3 and three overall with a 3.83 ERA, so it's not like the wheels have fallen off on him, but I think Sully has seen some stuff in his confidence and his mechanics they want to work out uh, to really hopefully get him ready for the the drive and of course we have a, a capable freshman like left which it's also an opportunity for him to get a start in an sec series that may help you uh down the road too i mean this is really the first i guess you could say skid the gators have hit you know they were in this series losing two in a row they've lost three of their last five that qualifies as a a slump for this team this year at 34-9, still ranked number one, lead the SEC by four games. So I, I think more than anything else, Adam, the the decision there to uh, skip Dyson is just to kind of reboot him and and uh, give Lethwich an opportunity. And uh, you know we've we've talked about this several times that this team is built around pitching, although the offense uh, is definitely better than I think anyone really envisioned but once it gets into the postseason if you're going to make it out to Omaha those nine to six ten to eight games suddenly start turning into four to two and three to one games and that's when your starting pitchers have to really be a, uh, at their best and I think they're wanting to get you know Singer, Coar, and, uh, and Dyson and then you know Leftwich as well get those four uh, humming come toward the postseason. Speaking of postseasons, there have been a uh, lot of really successful ones for Greg Troy at the helm of the Gators swimming program. And 
Uh, surprising news came out this week that he is retiring after 20 years, uh, countless championships, Olympians, you name it, he's done it. So I, I would ask the two of you, how surprising was this news to you guys? And tell us about the, the legacy that Greg Troy will leave. Well, I guess it was somewhat of a surprise, but at the same time, you look at uh, the body of work. I mean, the man's 67 years old. He's got uh, looking forward to spending some more time with his wife and with his three uh, adult sons that he says he hadn't been able to spend much time with over the last few years. But uh, you can look back at Florida swimming and think it's always been this uh, this mega dynasty. And, and in fact, that wasn't the case. There was a run of about 15 years where it was okay. And toward the end of that 15-year section, it was not good at all. The program that uh, Greg Troy took over had gone 14 and 10 in dual meets the previous two seasons while having lost 10 dual meets the previous 20 seasons combined. He, he inherited a reclamation project, the, the men's program that he, he did a year as the women's coach and then was promoted and then took on the men also. They finished 26th, I think, and 15th back-to-back in the NSAs and, uh, before he took over that program. So over the last 20 years, over 1,100 All-Americans, uh, six uh, men's uh, SEC titles, two uh, women's titles, a women's national championship in 2010, Olympians out the backside. Uh, I mean, uh, Ryan Lochte, Caleb Dressel. I mean, you coach Michael Phelps with the USA uh, Olympic team in 2012. This is a Hall of Fame career. It's a big moment here on campus to uh, say goodbye to Greg Troy. When we tweeted out the announcement, you just saw the outpouring of a, of a lot of people, some familiar names mentioning him and and wishing him well and what have you. So uh, uh, this happens every so often. Uh, obviously, you have someone who's around a long time and it's a big deal when they leave. And Greg Troy is the ninth coach in the history of Florida athletics, Adam, to uh, to be on the sidelines of one sport for at least 20 years. Uh, Mary Wise is one of those. She's still here. Becky Burley is one of those. She's still here. So uh, obviously those those three coaches are very close. And I was just over at the uh, graduation uh, banquet Thursday and Greg Troy actually showed up for that. A bunch of coaches did, including Dan Mullen. And it was Steve Spurrier was there. And you saw a lot of people talking to Greg Troy and wishing him well. And this is a big deal, but he's still going to be around. He's going to maintain his residence here in Gainesville and he's going to work with the elite performance side of the Gator Swim Club, which means he will be heavily involved in training Ryan Lochte, who's going to make a run at Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And of course, he's going to be right there with Caleb Dressel as uh, he makes a run for what should be, uh, uh, he should be one of the superstars in in 2020. It's pretty cool, actually, that Greg Choi's last uh, NCAA meet was Caleb Dressel's uh, last NCAA meet. And obviously, that was a big deal. Scott was there in Minnesota and uh, what a way for uh, for him to go out with such a spectacular performance, uh, a generational kind of performance there. Let's move on to our PAT. And, and instead of doing something uh, more serious-minded, like discussing the potential changes to college basketball, we can do that anytime. Let's talk about something fun. The Avengers comes out this week. Infinity War, maybe the biggest superhero blockbuster of all time. And I wanted to, to find out where you two stand on superhero movies and this could go all the way back to uh, we can go back to, to Christopher Reeve if you want to but I'm curious for you guys your favorite superhero comic book movies of all time well you know the first one I remember is the one that you just mentioned Superman with Christopher Reeve uh, but I was never a big Superman or comic book guy as a kid but I did love Batman I watched the Adam West series on TV uh, growing up and uh, or at least the reruns the 70s when I was a kid and uh so when the original Batman movie came out in 1989 with Michael Keaton 
that was a big deal for me because uh you know at that point I mean, it was a big deal in the movie industry and pop culture because they didn't make these things every other week like they do now uh so uh they had a big marketing blitz i mean it was a big hollywood event and you gotta remember this was before the internet and all the you know the cable tv as we know it today but it still uh, it still moved the needle even back then so and I like the movie. I mean, I, I watched all the Batman's uh, movies over the years. That's really the only only you. I can't say I've seen a, a lot of the other ones, but I've, I've always been a big Batman fan. So that's an easy answer for me. Uh, it's an easy answer for me too. I actually like the initial, the first um, uh, Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like they made like three Spider-Man since then. I'm not talking about Spider-Man. Movie. I'm talking. About- they made the same Spider-Man movie like three different times. Yes, they did. <laughs> and, which is a joke and which takes me to what we're talking about, superhero movies. Um, the most interesting thing about a superhero movie is when you get to see the origin of how the guy, the character became the character. After that, it disintegrates into just this uh, unoriginal, uh, cliche, buildings blowing up, uh, just ridiculous crap. And uh, I imagine the new, uh, uh, who are they called again? The Avengers? I'm at- <laughs> the Avengers. Yeah, that's going to be the same kind of thing. There's going to be, I'm, I don't know, Chicago, San Francisco, Tokyo, name the city. It's yeah. going to be destroyed. Probably I'll Washington, D.C. Yeah, Washington Monument's going to fall down, or Golden Gate Bridge is going to get flooded. or I mean, it's going to be the same thing. There won't be one original thought in the last 45 minutes of the movie, and it'll just be... <laughs> And everybody will talk about how great it is. One thing I do want to add on my Batman appreciation. When it got so ridiculous that they made the Batman versus Superman movie. Yeah. I refused to see that because I knew it would be stupid. And how many Batmans have they made? They made the. They made about six now. No, I'm talking about Batman, like original Batmans. You're talking the Michael Keaton one. You guys are talking to a Batman X. So there were two Michael Keaton Batmans. Then there was the Val Kilmer Batman. Then there was the George Clooney Batman. Then we had three Christian Bales, obviously the best. And since then, we've had two with Ben Affleck. So that's nine. Wow. Wow. I did. Well, I've skipped the Ben Affleck. But But I'm just saying they had, but there's been three. Or have there been three like like we're starting over with Batman? Yes, right. essentially, and there and there are there have been three Spider-Man uh, origin story Spider-Man movies in the last fifteen years. Right, which is which is kind of ridiculous, if you ask. which is which is crazy. It's also crazy. That I think for the second time. Uh, I've agreed with Chris in this podcast, which means it must be a sign that this podcast needs to come to a close for the day. You guys missed the boat, by the way. The easy answer, there's an easy answer to the question. The best superhero movie of all time is, without question, The Dark Knight. Uh, there are no other contenders, period, full stop. But listen, if you're not out seeing the Avengers this weekend, make sure to follow Chris and Scott. They'll be covering baseball, softball, and of course, keeping tabs on the Gators and where they go in the NFL draft over at FloridaGators.com. You can check them out as well on Twitter at Gators Scott and at Gators Chris. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We will not be tweeting from the Avengers, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'll even be going to the Avengers. I silenced my cell phone. While this year's baseball squad has been more offensively potent than in recent years, the foundation of this team and the program remains the pitching staff. Kevin O'Sullivan has churned out ace after ace during his time in Gainesville, and one of the latest stars he's produced is Jackson Kowar. The junior righty has overcome medical hardships and odd circumstances to become a weekend star in the rotation, and we begin our chat with him by asking about the significance of their success in Lexington. 
Yeah, I think it was huge uh, to take that series in Kentucky just because and that's historically a really tough place to play, and they play really well at home. Um, it's kind of a unique ballpark. It's got a little bit of a short porch in right field, um, and they got a bunch of rowdy fans that kind of sit out there and write, and it's kind of a tough place to play. And then it's cold there. Um, it was it was pretty chilly this weekend, especially the first two nights. So a little bit out of our comfort zone, and that's a, a really, really good offensive team, and they have you know a couple really big-time right-handers that are tough. So to be able to take two or three there is something I know that we haven't done in a while. Um, since I think 2012. So uh, definitely no easy task. I think that was a nice victory, especially on the road. You know, Omaha is not a, at the max. So it's definitely <laughs> nice to, to get used to winning on the road and against a really good team. So that was definitely exciting for us. But, you know, we still have a, a big four series left in the SEC and, and a big test this weekend. You mentioned the weather up there being a challenge, and we've seen that across Major League Baseball, these really cold temperatures and how it can really you know, play tricks on people. What are the challenges of weather specifically when you're talking about what you've got to do? Yeah, I think pitching in the cold, it's kind of a double-edged sword because no one likes to hit in the cold either. So you mm-hmm. can kinda, it kind of can be to your benefit and your detriment a little bit. Uh, the nice thing is usually once you kind of get running and moving around, you don't notice it as much. So it's almost better to be playing than to be sitting. Sitting on the bench is almost worse because then you're just sitting there wearing it. Uh, but we they've done a great job since I've been here. Anytime we go to the cold weather, we have hot jackets and heaters in the dugout and pretty much anything you could really need. I think they even got a heater in the bullpen. So Very nice. Um, yes. You know, Eggy, our equipment guy, it has really outdone himself um, since I've been here as far as just making sure that there's no issues with any uh, of us on the road. And it's not always super fun, especially get, you get kind of used to living down here in Florida where it's <laughs> humid and muggy all the time. So it's a little bit of an adjustment, but we get all the gear that we need. So it's, it's not usually really an issue. You know, so many teams struggle with the weight of winning a national championship and following that up with your next performance, but that doesn't seem to bother this team at all. How do you think you've been able to handle that so well? Yeah, I think uh, it's a couple of things. I think we returned a lot of guys who um, were really good teammates and kind of were able to, to realize that what, what won us last year, what won us the national championship last year was being like a phenomenal team. I think a lot of the guys that we returned understand that. And so a lot of our starters especially in the field, have, have really helped kind of transition the young guys that have played into realizing that it's it's a team effort, and that's how we won last year. So I think having guys that had that experience and learned from that experience last year um, out in the field, and they were kind of able to teach some of the young guys, and I think Sully did a really good job of, of kind of giving this team its own identity. You know, he said from day one that this is not the same team as last year. It's a different team. Uh, we have different players. So I think that's been nice, and kind of helped the new guys get incorporated knowing that you know last year was last year was great but this is a completely different team and and we're gonna write our own story and that's kind of given our team the ability to like take identity with this team this year you mentioned earlier getting used to the uh, the hot and muggy weather down in florida but that is not where you grew up so if you can tell us about where you came from and your family that kind of started the uh, the jackson coar story yeah well I'm, i'm from north carolina my dad and my mom met at unc charlotte um, so my dad played baseball there and that's where I grew up with Charlotte, North Carolina. And initially out of high school, I was signed with Clemson, um, and coach Leggett, uh, after my sophomore summer and was really excited about that opportunity. It was kind of a dream of mine. I had always loved that program and, and coach Leggett and he was a hall of fame coach. And unfortunately after my senior season, after I'd already signed a national letter of intent, he got let go there. Um, and I was able to, I was given my release to kind of reopen my recruitment, uh, which was, uh, really awesome and a unique opportunity for me. 
Uh, and I knew that <clears throat> the culture that Coach Leggett had created at Clemson was kind of something that I had been drawn to. And the culture at Florida with uh, Sully was very similar, considering Sully had uh, Coach and her Leggett for a number of years at Clemson mm-hmm. and was the pitching coach there. So that was something that off the bat kind of drew me to the program. And then once I took a visit and kind of got around the guys and got a feel of the culture and, and the kind of players that were in my class and the kind of players that recruited, I, I just fell in love. And, you know, I was really blessed uh, to be given the opportunity to, you know, re-up my recruitment at that stage, considering it was, so, I mean, it was July going into my into my freshman year of college, which is really unusual in baseball. So uh, and it was just a really good situation. Florida had kind of gotten gutted that year. On uh, the draft, my class had three or four pitchers signed. There was kind of a need, and it was really a perfect uh, storm of, you know, they had a need at pitcher, and then I, I got my release. So it worked out really well, and, you know, I've just been so blessed. I think it's been, you know, at the time, it was obviously no fun, but it's been a real blessing in disguise. Having a dad that played baseball and, and that background, did you start playing from a really young age, and did you always know that this is the, the path you wanted to follow? Yeah, I think my, my dad played in college and then played a year uh, professionally in the Blue Jays organization. So, you know, growing up, everyone, you know, wants to be like their dad. And, and I was no different. I always, you know, looked out to my dad and, and he was my hero. So baseball was always kind of my favorite sport. And yeah, I guess everyone grows up thinking they're going to, you know, go play college baseball and this and that. And, and my dad was a real instrumental part of that for me. And um, he was always good about, you know, never pushing me too hard and, and kind of made me take ownership of it. He He kind of made it where it was never going to be him who was dragging me to the field. It was always going to be my decision. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to go, he was going to go with me and, and work me hard. But he was never going to force me to you know, go out of my way to do anything. He always wanted me to take ownership of it. And I think that was, that was awesome. And uh, I, you know, I'm so grateful for that from him. How did you gravitate toward pitching? Was he a pitcher as well? And was that always the, the direction you wanted to go? Yeah, he was a pitcher as well. So um Initially, as a kid, I, you know, like everybody else, I like, you know, I wanted to be like Derek Jeter, and I was a shortstop <laughs> on the Little League team and, and whatnot. And then in high school, I ended up growing six or seven inches in a year or two and got real skinny. And they don't, there's not too many six, three, buck 50 pound shortstops out there. So, <laughs> so in high school, my options were limited. I, I couldn't really hit. And, uh, and I genuinely just enjoyed pitching. I think, um, I've really learned, learned to fall in love with the routine of it, of being a starting pitcher. I, I really enjoyed that and, and just kind of having the ball controlling everything in the game was something that I really, I really liked and kind of the mental aspect of pitching. So I think once I, once I kind of started getting steered that direction, I, I really took ownership of it. You've obviously had a lot of success at Florida and, and things have gone pretty well for you over your career. Going back to what you were talking about just a, a few minutes ago in terms of how you got to Florida in such a, a roundabout way, do you ever think about how things would have been different for you if Coach Leggett hadn't been fired and you ended up at Clemson? Yeah, you know, it crossed my mind from time to time. Um, I, I think coming to Florida was the best thing that, that could have happened to me. Obviously, I would have loved to go play for Coach Leggett and I've actually been lucky enough to where he's He's, you know, come down and been around the program a little bit with Sully and, and talked to us. So I've still got to spend some time with him, and that's been awesome. But I think, you know, getting out of state and getting out of my comfort zone was something that probably really needed out of high school, uh, coming from a little bit of a smaller private school uh, and coming to a huge public school like this, I think, has been, you know, big for me just as far as growing and, and getting out of my comfort zone and, and, and getting to know people that I didn't know and getting around a culture that, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with, I didn't know a single student at the University of Florida when I came here. So I didn't know any, obviously I didn't know any of the recruits. I didn't know any, I didn't know anybody um, other than for a day on my official visit. So 
that was uh, a pretty unique situation, but I think it kind of forced me to grow up really fast and it has been to my benefit. Well, then you really had to grow up fast when you got to Florida and then things obviously didn't go very well for your freshman year. You suffer a collapsed lung and just derails your season. And I imagine what was pretty scary for you personally. So can you just, can you take us through that and, and how you recovered from that? Yeah, it's something that happened to me in high school. So I was kind of familiar with it. You know, initially it sounds a little scary than it kind of realistically is. Um, you know, about halfway through my, my freshman year, I had been the midweek starter for about half the games. Uh, we were kind of split, depending on how much Dane Dunning had thrown the weekends. That guy was pretty good. <laughs> so they, they would use, he was usually the first choice. But if he had thrown a little bit too much on the weekends, I was getting a couple of midweek starts and doing okay and kind of finding my little role on the team that year with such a talented staff. So just kind of happy to, to be contributing in any way that year. Um, and then uh, I was sitting on the bench at South Carolina on Friday night. And I might have been familiar with my lung, what, what kind of felt like for your lung to collapse. And, you know, I pretty much told my trainer that I, that was, was going on and I uh, went to the hospital and it, it had collapsed enough to where it was going to require surgery. And unfortunately, it was pretty much season ending. And that was definitely difficult. Um, you know, I never really had, had to sit out or be away from the team before. And that's a kind of scary feeling. And it's kind of kind of makes you step back and realize that baseball goes on without you and gives you really, you know, a really good appreciation for the game, knowing that. They still play games whether or not you're there. So it makes you really got to enjoy your time and how lucky you really are to be playing. So, um, you know, luckily the doctors and everything did a great job. And I was able to come back that summer and work out with Coach Paul, our strength coach, and and get back to where I needed to be going right into that fall and really had no setbacks. And definitely not fun at the time, but don't have to worry about it anymore. Kind of got taken care of at least at a somewhat young age and, and have been blessed to not have to deal with it since. Having to be a bystander when the team went to Omaha your first year, they go 0-2, and I'm sure it was you know disappointing, but also how did that motivate you to, to try and get back and, and be a part of that going forward? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it was definitely just tough seeing, I think, the older guys, knowing that that was kind of their last go around and, and, and seeing how upset they were. Let me know that you know that's definitely not how I want to want to leave the program obviously losing in Omaha is no bad season but uh just seeing how how they looked and felt knowing that their Gator crew was over um I think that's kind of stuck with me just seeing how the older guys reacted and knowing that you know you gotta you know cherish these moments and that uh you know we only have a couple years here uh they only give you four years of eligibility so (laughs) to really cherish and, and work hard and enjoy the teammates here well, then you came back last year and posted a school record 12-1 and mark on the mound. So coming off of what was a frustrating freshman year with all the, the medical issues, how did you have that type of uh, season and that type of success? Yeah, last year was an interesting year. I mean, my, I didn't necessarily throw the best on this path, but I think on Sundays we just scored a lot of runs for me and got me that 12-1 and record. And that's, I think that's just as much of a testament to the rest of the team and the offense and the defense as it is to me. Um, they did a phenomenal job whenever I was out there, giving me the run support I needed. But uh, it was definitely exciting. You know, like I said, I, I love just being a part of, of a team and being able to contribute. So um, that was awesome. It's kind of taking a bigger weekend role. And I was really excited to kind of have my first season in the SEC. And, and uh, I think that was a lot of fun, just being able to compete every week with those kind of lineups and those kind of teams has been has been a really fun uh, task over the last two years. So. I think it was, you know, it was exciting to to kind of get past the injury that freshman year and, and have a full season under my belt and, and be healthy and just be out there contributing. 
interesting things happen in Omaha. So you go there, you take your first loss of the year against TCU, and then the next time you're called upon is for your first relief appearance of the season in the clinching game, what proved to be the clinching game of the championship series against LSU. So when you're used to going out there as a starter you know, every weekend, what was that like? Did Sully tell you ahead of time he might use you like that? And, and, and what were you thinking before that? Oh, uh, well, I had, I had talked to him before the game and, and just to let, I know had I know Byrne had had such a heavy workload out of the bullpen towards the end of the year. And so I knew that I had had, you know, kind of the biggest rest of basically anyone on the staff, uh, having only pitched that one game in Omaha. Brady and Alex had both thrown two and Byrne had pretty much thrown every game. So I knew that I was kind of the one who probably had the most gas left in the tank at that point of all the guys. So I just made sure I made a point to say that, you know, if he needed me for an inning or an out or two innings, uh, that second game, that I would still be available the very next day in the championship series uh, just in case he needed me. And it turns out I think Bernie just kind of ran out of gas there at the end a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, he threw more leverage innings and more leverage pitches than probably anybody in the country. So I was happy I was able to kind of bail him out. Um, you know, pitch out of the pin there was was interesting. I, I definitely haven't been used to, as a starter. You can kind of work your way into the game. I haven't been used to that kind of adrenaline rush, but uh, it was definitely a lot of fun. Uh, and I was just incredible. And still kind of can't believe that I was the one that, that was able to be out there for the last out. It's still kind of, if ever I like run across the video or someone sends it to me or something, it's still kind of, kind of hard. I have to pinch myself a little bit to know that that was me. That was lucky enough to be out there, especially given all the the great arms that we had on the staff. So yeah, and, and because you were pitching, that meant you were on the bottom of the dog pile. I'm curious, how often do you go back to being in the bottom of that dog pile? Do you have do you wake up in the middle of the night sweating thinking about it, or does it does it subside uh, after a while? I I've actually luckily I've been I, in high school. I won two state championships um, <laughs> where I got the last out as well. So it was not fortunately it was not my first dog pile. My first dog pile I got absolutely annihilated, <laughs> and uh, this year. Or last year, I was actually smart enough to kind of wiggle my way to the outside of the dog pile. I didn't want to go down. I tried to hold my hold my ground, but <laughs> I think Byrne and Colman and Dyson ended up taking me down, and David Lee, and then JJ jumped on top of me. Uh, but I was kind of able to wiggle out of the outskirts um, and lay flat, so I didn't get too damaged by it. But uh, honestly, I you know I don't even really hardly remember being on the dog. I kind of. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of can't remember that part. Um, so yeah, luckily I had a little bit of experience before that, so I was able to kind of wiggle my way out. You should do a dog piles for dummies book to help people prepare for that moment, since you've had some experience with it now. Yeah, you just gotta go flat, straight flat. <laughs> you don't want any of your shoulders getting smushed on the bottom. You just gotta go flat like plank. That's my best advice. Uh, you mentioned a second ago. You know, you had the the record the record record last year, the 12 and one mark, but you didn't feel like you threw it as well as you could have this year. You've shaved almost a run and a half off your ERA. So what have you done to, to make such big strides on the mound this year? Uh, I think just being able to finish my outing strong. I think last year, a lot of outings, I would kind of get to the sixth or the fifth and it would just kind of peter off and I would end up giving up that big hit or that big run that, you know, that big double or whatever towards the end of the outing that would kind of hurt me. This year, I've really just focused on being able to kind of save a little bit uh, in the tank for those last inning or two to kind of help bridge that gap to the bullpen a little easier. Um, we have so many young guys out there. I think it's important for uh, starters to you know be able to go deep into games. So just be able to go deep into games and finish off my outing strong has been you know I think a big thing for me this year that I've, I've been pretty happy to see. Um, still trying to cut down a couple of the walks and just get a little more efficient. Um, 
with my pitches and save some pitches when I, when I need, when I can. And, and uh, I'm still working on that. And, and you know, I've, there's always room to grow. But I think this year, um, just being able to make big pitches towards the end of the games has been something that I think I've, I've been able to do pretty well and finish off the outing strong. There were so many great arms that came before you. And now you look at what Butler, what Leftwich you're doing as freshmen. What's the secret sauce that Sully uses with you guys to, to make you into these elite pitchers? Uh, you know, I don't know if there's any really a secret sauce. I think the number one thing is he always um, finds a way and recruits talented players. I think he's an excellent evaluator of talent and, and the guys he's get, able to get to campus, um, which is not always hard, uh, especially with the draft and, and the high scores I can sign. So that's that's a skill in itself is being able to identify kids that want to come to school and, and want to be part of the program. And then I think if you talk to me and Brady about it, we learned a lot just from the older pitchers when we were younger. So Logan and AJ and Sean Anderson and Dane Dunning, um, and then Alex, and hopefully they're kind of learning from us. I think that's that's a big part of it is uh, the older guys really take ownership of the program and ownership of the pitching staff, and that's something that – that's the culture that existed when I got here, and we've been trying to pass that culture down is you, you take you take care of the younger guys, and you kind of show them you know, what you know, what you've learned, and, and hopefully they can pick up on a thing or two. Um, and if, if everyone can kind of pick up on small things from each other, then that's how you kind of grow as a staff. And and have multiple, multiple uh, good arms. So I think that's something that our program does well is we've kind of had a, a culture where the pitchers take care of themselves and they teach each other. And there's a lot of competition amongst each other, which which makes you grow. I mean, if you want a pitcher, you really have to you really have to elevate your game. I think that makes everyone on the staff stronger. Final few things for you. Uh, your sport's unique because the draft is taking place during the season as opposed to after. How much does that come up among you and, and some of your teammates who are expected to be high picks? I mean, naturally, it'll come up a little bit just as, you know, you know, people will talk to you and and there's different things you have to do, you know, as far as things with the MLB office and stuff like that. That's just inevitable. But other than that, I think, you know, we have also, like I said, we learn from the older guys. And, and the thing about it is, is if you take care of your business on the field, it really all that should take care of itself. So um, <clears throat> there's not really too much you should worry about or or think about other than if you go out and play your game and, and win and and help your team win and that's really going to put you in the best situation uh that you can be come the draft um so i think like i said we learned a lot from the older guys and how they handled it and you know how they focus on the team and 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 realize that if you <clears throat> handle your business and that'll all take care of itself so and i think everyone on the team i think having a couple guys on our team that are going through it with you is also helpful when you get some time away from the field, I, don't, I know there's probably not that much of it that's not consumed with class and other things, but what do you enjoy doing when you do have a, a, some free time that you can enjoy for yourself? Once finals gets over, which we're, we're coming up on, thankfully, we're, we're, about, we're about to wrap it up, so that's nice. Um, obviously, as a pitcher, I love to go play golf. Um, <laughs> I live you know, right, right across the street from uh, Bostick, so... Uh, we get to we go out and get the twilight fee, get the student the student rate, and it's it's pretty uh, inexpensive as far as uh, how nice the course is. So that that's a lot of fun to do, um, and that that's kind of a good way to to kill uh, a couple hours, especially when we get out of class. We still have to hang around campus, so it's only so much you can practice. So that's probably what I'll start getting into a little bit here. I'm struggling a little bit right now, uh, <laughs> but I need to. Uh, I'm going to get a little range time once class gets out, so I'm excited about that. Who's the best golfer on the team? Who who do you hate playing with because you know you can't beat him? Well, last year we had a couple more golfers on the team. Uh, David Lee was really good, uh, and then Ryan Larson and Mark Colesbury were all really solid players. 
Uh, right now, freshman Tommy Mace is a pretty good player. Hmm. He's he's a little country club kid. He can play <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Michael Byrne is is also a sneaky good player. Uh, I think I'd say Tommy Mace is the best. Michael Byrne is definitely my least favorite to play with though, because he's always he's playing a million miles an hour. <laughs> uh, he's the toughest to keep up with. Not, it doesn't sound very relaxing for you when you get away from everything. No, Burns never relaxed ever. <laughs> That's the the closer mindset, I guess. You always gotta be, always gotta be locked in. Yeah. Uh, final thing for you, Jackson. Uh, you guys are entering, you know, the final month of the year. You still have SEC series to go, and there's a lot on the horizon. But what would you say the mindset of this group is right now? Things are going so well. How do you maintain that and keep that drive to win another title? Yeah, I think everyone's just kind of focused uh, in the present. I think that's we've done a really good job that this year. We haven't really looked ahead um, too much to anything. We just uh, have really tried to take it one game, one series at a time, and and locking on our you know what we have you know right in front of us. And I think you know that sounds super cliche, but that's really uh, the best way to go about it. I don't think you know obviously we have the same goals every year. I've been here. Uh, that's to win the SEC, and that's to go to Omaha. That's to win it, but. So that really, that really has never changed. That expectation has always been there since I've been here, you know, regardless of, you know, how the season was going. So I think we always kind of have that expectation um, in the back of our head. But, you know, to accomplish any goals like that, you really have to be present. And I think that, um, you know, having a couple of veterans, especially, you know, on the staff with me, Brady and Michael, and then in the lineup with Johnny and JJ and Nick and Deacon, Having older guys like that, I think we've definitely tried to help out the younger guys and, and stay in the here and now and not, you know, worrying about, you know, regionals or super regionals or, or anything like that is the only thing you can really control right now is getting ready for Auburn. Well, Jackson, we know you've got a lot on your plate with, as we talked about, the draft, trying to win another national championship and getting that golf game in, in proper order. So we thank you for taking some time to talk to us and we wish you a lot of luck. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators in the NFL Draft all weekend long and support baseball and softball as they host important series against various Tigers. Then come back next Thursday as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the Draft.